0: Hello, everyone. Um, Welcome to today's event. I'm Sara Pantuliano, the chief executive at ODI. Apologies for the delay. I think we thought we would start in in normal Sudanese time, 50 minutes late. (laughs) I'm afraid one of the panelists is um, caught up in traffic and the other one is joining us from Um, from Cairo, actually, Uh, we are struggling to connect. Let's see if we manage to. Otherwise, we have a room full of Sudan experts and I know who I can call upon to come and help. Um, But I I think it's really clear from the number of people that are here with us today and the number of people that are online, actually, that this is a topic of great concern to many people. Um, We have a, a fantastic panel of speakers and Halud has just arrived, I love no problem, we just, started. we just started, thank you, and you are definitely <laughs> you have any every right to arrive later, it's fantastic to have you here, thank you, I'll introduce you in a second, so just to to uh, explain how we're going to go about it, we'll talk to the panel first, and then we'll bring, you know, everyone else in for, questions and answers for comments, a lot of you uh, that come from Sudan, who have lived in Sudan for a long time, so there is a lot of expertise to to draw upon. Um, For those who are joining online, and there are more than 600 people joining the discussion online, um, use the chat box at the bottom of uh, um, the screen to put your questions, put your comments, and then I'll uh, bring them to the the wider wider audience. It'd be fantastic to hear everyone's perspective and for those who would like to follow in Arabic you have an option this is being you know translated um so in the in the um the zoom um screen there is a translation option if you click on that you can move to Arabic for those who are following online if there are colleagues here who would prefer to follow the conversation in Arabic we have a room set up next door you you can go next door and there'll be the arabic um sort of version of this conversation there um please share what we're discussing today on twitter there's been a lot of stuff on twitter not always the best one and i will comment on that but let's share the 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 best elements of our conversation today use the um the hashtag sudan crisis I have lived and worked in Sudan for many, many years, and I have to say the past two weeks have been terrible at the personal level, been horrified by what I've seen in, in Khartoum. Um, last week it was 20 years um, since the attack of the Sudan, like two weeks ago, really, the Sudan Liberation Movement on the airport in El Fasher, um, in order for, and that started a complete claim hundreds of thousands of lives and a lot of, you know, untold suffering. And I think it's clear that the impunity that was afforded the perpetrators of that conflict um, has had direct links to the violence that we're seeing today in Khartoui. We had been planning to mark that anniversary. Um, We wanted to organize a discussion because we felt that Darfur had dropped off everybody's radar. Um, not everybody's, you know, I see if colleagues here that continue to work and support um, um friends in Darfur. But we just wanted to provide a deeper analysis of you know the um the current violence, the ongoing conflict in, in Darfur, um as well as in other parts of the countries. And and I think you know, recent events confirmed that our preoccupations were well funded. I've written in recent days that the violence in in Khartoum is the tragic result of decades of muddle peace agreements and an unabated greed in Sudan. I think both political instability and you know the manipulation of ethnic tensions that has been going on for, for decades have created a, a tinderbox that at last is derailing the, the whole country. And you know, many of us um with close ties to Sudan have Long fear that this may finally happen. The situation in Sudan has dominated, you know, international media in the past few weeks, but not in a good way. You know, I keep reading and hearing about how to get experts out of um, Sudan, how to, you know, sort to, to get British sort of um, in in this country, you know, British um, citizens out of Sudan or you know other third party um, citizens, and there's been very little attention paid to the plight of Sudanese citizens who are trapped in Khartoum, or those who have made harrowing journeys, is one of them, you know, to the Egyptian border, border, or to Port Sudan, or to Medani, or wherever else, you know, other Sudanese cities, have very many close friends who have made really distressing journeys and are traumatized by the experience of those journeys. They've been terrible, you know, not just the shock of what's happening in Khartoum, but actually trying to get to safety. And others haven't been so fortunate. A lot of us, our friends were still trapped in Khartoum and Omdurman and can't leave because it's too unsafe to leave their homes. And I think beyond this, I've heard a lot of generalizations about the origins of the fighting, you know, really sloppy analysis linked to the Wagner group or the Ukraine crisis. So we decided to build on the event with one, you know, originally planned on Darfur, on the 20 years of the, the conflict in Darfur, and actually, you know, have a, a group of fantastic Sudanese colleagues and other Sudan analysts to, you know, bring a more rooted um, sort of a perspective to the discussion. Um, and as I was saying, we have, you know, 600 people joining online who are also Princes of Sudan or Sudanese themselves have worked in the country for a long time, or you know Sudanese, of course, still live there or are um, abroad. So, without further ado, let me introduce the panel. We have lost um, Mohammed, uh, Mohammed uh, Hashim because, of course he's been sent to um, Saudi Arabia to cover you know, people who are arriving in uh, in Jeddah. Um, I'm hoping we can, you know, sort of bring him. Bring his analysis on a podcast that we'll also release on the crisis. But I'm delighted that Suad Amuza is with us. So is a long friend from Darfur. Um, she's the author of the 2019 Aydou Snyder award winning book, Hawks and Doves in Sudan's Armed Conflict, Al Hakamat Bagara Women of Darfur. Um, Suad is also an activist on women's rights, um, gender equality, and peace building. And she's the founder of the Gender Center for Peace Building and Sustainable Development based in El fasher um, North Air Been joined by Khaloud Kale. I am so delighted to have you here, hearing twice, because we're very delighted to hear you, Khalud. Mm. so we're hearing that twice mm-hmm. in stereo. Um, is the founding director of Conference Advisor, is a, a policy think and do time based in Khartoum. He's a brilliant policy and political analyst, a commentator of current events, a radio broadcaster. And as I was alluding to before, Khalud has just fled um, the violence in Khartoum through a dreadful journey and made it to London. And we're so delighted that you are with us tonight, Khalud. Yeah. To my right, I have Suzanne Jasper. Suzanne is a senior research fellow at SOAS. She's, uh, she researches the political dynamics of food in conflict, and humanitarian crisis, and famine. She first went to Sudan in 1988 years before me, <laughs> um, lived long for time. two years Great. in Darfur, long time, and visited many times since. She co-edits a Journal with me and is the Vice-President of the International Humanitarian Studies Association. And we should have at some point, I hope, Musab Abdel Jalil, professor of social anthropology and director of the Peace Research Institute at the University of Khartoum. But we've been struggling and we did a, a, a line test this morning there is no sign of Musa, we can't track him on WhatsApp either. So, Musa was gonna set the scene. I uh, I couldn't fail but to notice that Eddie Thomas is also with us. And because Eddie is a long standing friend and a very generous soul, <laughs> Eddie has agreed to help set the scene on the cuff because um, we do need someone to help track you know what's happened from the conflict in Darfur to today, and how we've got to today. Eddie, do you mind taking the chair here and joining us on this side? I and know. I think it deserves a round of applause for jumping from the into the fire. Thank Thanks, Eddie. I'm really <laughs> grateful. If Musa comes online, I tell him that he owes you many, many cups of tea. Yeah, yeah.
1: Thank so, oh, thank you.
0: Peg. So, if you just help it's us. Sort of five
1: minutes. Or yeah, five, yeah, yeah. 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 So, 20 years since an attack on an airport in Darfur turned a long running period of insecurity in Darfur into an out, outright sort of civil war, into a new civil war in Sudan, which was terrible, terrible consequences for the people of Darfur. So many of them died. And also, a new, a kind of new kind of horror was visited on Darfur, which was called the Janjaweed, which is a very elusive word in Arabic, which connotes horses and devils and G four rifles. Uh, you know, it's a kind of funny mix up of a word. And what was the Janjaweed? It was a, it was a, a kind of militia which used ethnicity as a re- recruiting sergeant. It picked up people from particular social groups in Darfur, social groups who were the most marginalized as far as land rights were concerned, camel pastoralists who were a social group which had the least rights to land. And it mobilized them to fight against insurgents who were principally from groups that practiced farming that were sedentary, that had better land rights. So it was one of these things where you, you kind of fiddled around with um, ethnic relationships, you turned sort of everyday ethnic r- relationships into very deep, brutal antagonisms between people. And all sorts of cruel violence was inflicted on the people of Darfur at that time. And it became a huge story across the world, You know, partly because, well, for all sorts of reasons, I'm not gonna go into all the reasons why it became famous, but uh, I, I'm t- I'd like to talk about the Djanjuid because the Djanjuid turned into a new kind of social formation from, from a group of local, brutal heavies who were prepared to use the worst weapons of war against their neighbors. They somehow turned themselves into an incredibly capable force. Um, and how did that happen? Well, I'm going to jump from 2003 to 2011, to explain that. In, in 2011, some, you know, it's very difficult to know when to date the start of Sudan's crisis. Some people say in the late 18th century, you know, but you can take any any <laughs> any any crisis point since then. But 2011, that's when South Sudan split off from Sudan. Part of the reason for the crisis in Darfur was that a long running war in South Sudan was coming to an end as oil was found in South Sudan. So the rebel movements in South Sudan decided to make a deal with the government in Khartoum, partly motivated by oil. So oil was kind of something that brought peace, but oil also brought war because the people in Darfur were not likely to benefit so much from the oil revenues. And part of the reason for the insurgency in Darfur was that armed groups in Darfur wanted to get more of that oil revenue revenue. and but the outcome of the peace deal that led to the division of oil between north and south was that the south sudan seceded from sudan and that led to an economic crisis that really affected the whole of sudan and within one year of 2011 of the secession of south sudan of the end effective end of major oil revenue reliable oil revenues for sudan about the Ministry of Mining estimated that about a million people were involved in gold mining and gold soon became uh, accounted for half of Sudan's wealth, uh, exported wealth. So what was needed was a new security arrangement in in Sudan. Until then, you'd had uh, a central uh, you know, a central uh, river River Nile area, which was relatively stable, which was managed through uh, ordinary techniques of repression and ghost houses and informers, and you had a militia system which was governing increasingly large areas of uh, increasingly impoverished rural Sudan. But the gold system required the ability, to manage rural governance and resource extraction across wide swathes of Sudan. Um, And those wide swathes of Sudan were difficult to govern because there were insurgencies everywhere. And Hemeti, the leader of the RSF was the person who came up with a system for managing all of those conflicts at once, for deploying enormous violence, radiating it across Sudan and managing resource extraction in the process. from somebody who started off as a janjaweed as somebody who was like just um managing a bit of local violence for his bosses in Khartoum he became the system in Sudan he became the wealth extraction system for the whole country and um he and and um he um got closer and closer to the center of the state and in fact the dispatching of the, di- the dictator omar al-bashir in, in 2019, led to his promotion to effectively deputy president of the country. Now, he was he was an extremely astute politician. He invested. He provided he provided uh, mercenaries for Yemen. He provided mercenaries for the EU to uh, to stop uh, migrants from travelling, which is a huge story, which I hope we talk about today. Um, uh, and he so he was a diplomatic actor. He knows the Russians, he knows the Wagner group, he knows all sorts of people, and he got right up into the center of power. He was part of the government which was established in 2019, which was which was a transitional government brought about by the bravery and sacrifice of many, many young people who put who, who through their demonstrations, their urban demonstrations, were able to push the dictator out of power. And we had in 2019, an alliance between, uh, or a compromise we should call it, between civilians whose legitimacy was drawn from the the, uh, sacrifice and bravery of the young demonstrators in Khartoum, um, who went into alliance with the security forces really to avoid what we see today. They were wanted to avoid a massive breakdown in the country. So they were prepared to do a deal with the devil of sorts, really. Um, now fast forward now to 2020, October 21, there was a, the, the, the security force, the security element of this of this um, of this triumvirate of this uh, you know the RSF, the army and the civilians. and it actually became a fourfold thing when they brought in the, the armed groups, from the, from the peripheries, they brought them into government in a peace deal. The security elements of the, of the government decided to throw out the civilian elements in, in October, 2021. But they had no political project, no plan for the country. They just had a resource extraction machine, which was creaky, extremely violent, was delivering money but only for a very small group of people in the country. and. They didn't have anything to offer the country, but they, but it was all. It was known that they were going to fight for who got control of this machine, and that fight. We all, I mean, many people could see that that was a possible outcome for Sudan, but I must say, as a foreign person who kind of has been writing about Sudan for a while. I hate to pronounce curses on Sudan to say it's a failed state. It's going to be, it's on the brink of disaster. I think we all didn't want it to happen. And we all knew that Sudan had managed not to let it happen through its, there's been a hundred years of peace in Khartoum. We all knew that that could maybe continue somehow or other. It may even have been that some people on the military side were trying to prevent this happening. Were postponing it until the last minute. I don't know what crisis happened that sparked the current situation, but basically two military who have the, exactly the same interest, which is to make a lot of money and be as nasty as they want to be, um, have decided to fight each other. And it's a terrible, terrible cost.
0: Thank you, Thank so, you so much. <laughs> Thanks, thank you.
2: Yeah, I, mean, I really, I appreciate
0: you. I time we, time. You can sit. You can say here. I absolutely. I think you can enrich the panel with more um, insights. Uh, that was incredibly succinct and, you know, accurate and to the point. I mean, we can discuss and, and add points, but you know, in 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 five minutes, I think you captured the essence of what you know we've been. Seeing over the past 20 years and what we're seeing today. Um, Suzanne, you've just been looking at all the material that we have published in disasters over the past 20 years um, on Darfur. Mm-hmm. Um, are there lessons that you take from all the material that you have reviewed, as you know, all the scholarship over the past 20 years
2: apply to what we're seeing today? Um, yes yes there's certainly um a lot of lessons to be learned it's actually we've been publishing on darfur for 40 years so i mean the first article was on the um the economy of the Bertie, i think by daniel uh, Holly yeah. in uh, 1980 um so yes it's 40 years of publications on darfur pre crown crisis and 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 um and throughout um So if there's lessons to be learned, I would say there's maybe, you know, of course there's many, many lessons to be learned, but I would say I would pick out three. One is the the very, very long lead up to the current crisis. Um, Another is the importance of um, analyzing the political economy and how it changes. And then there's specific issues related to humanitarian programming. Um, So, you know, when talking about the long history leading up to the current crisis, I mean, just looking even just looking at the articles i mean it's you know they're very much about the uh the concentration of wealth and resources or wealth and power that has always been in sudan center um we read about kind of the the labor migration from uh the west including darfur um, to commercial farms in sudan center to um um to towns um, there's articles about drought and economic crisis in the 1970s and 1980s, and how that changes local economies, how it eventually led to famine, but also how that um, kind of magnified um, wealth differentials or kind of you know, increased inequalities. And also even in these kind of early years about a crisis of governance, about kind of a change of kind of government or, or if it was ever there to kind of Meets kind of pu- or to provide public services to actually act in their own kind of self interest or economic self interest. And now, of course, we talk about this kind of industrial security military complex that um, Eddie was talking about that's kind of become a kind of resource extraction machine. You have a very small group of people who control m- much of Sudan's um, wealth. Um, there's also, even in the early papers, lessons to be learned about aid. Um, uh, even in kind of, you know, drought or or response, we read about displaced populations, nomadic pastoral populations being excluded from um, uh, assistance and also about transporters and brokers and traders really acting in their own interest rather than, you know, really taking aid to the most needy. Now, that, that all kind of continues into kind of war, uh, political economy of war, um, and uh, Eddie has already talked a lot about the kind of the, the, the use of militia, but I mean, it's, it's maybe go, uh, worth going back a little bit further in that, you know, is how, you know, it was really the, the, the economic hardship, the political marginalization, the impoverishment that both led to the rebellions, but also that enabled the use of kind of impoverished pastoralists as as, as militia. Um, and so, and this, you know, it's all of you will know, I'm sure, you know, this started with the war in the south, the use of militia there, uh, uh, with pastors from southern Kordofan, and the same strategy was kind of built on by uh, Omar al-Bashir in Darfur, and as we've heard, the RSF uh, arose out of one such uh, militia, the Janjaweed, of course. Um, all of you will know that you know again the strategy in in Darfur was associated with destruction looting killing displacement rape and you know there's um going back to disasters i mean there's articles uh analyzing and 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 um recording that um the other issue there is to uh uh maybe highlight is um, the manipulation of aid and how that's become part of sudan's political economy often kind of strengthening the more powerful and kind of excluding the more marginalized uh, populations um and also about um you know we don't about the the you know populations not only uh benefiting from the diversion of aid but also from um you know famine in itself um where uh, sorry I mentioned and to mention this earlier, I mean raiding, displacement and the distortion of markets can create famine, but it also, you know leads to sale of cattle, uh, the movement of uh, you know, it, it creates cheap livestock and cheap um, uh, labor that uh, from which um, uh, merchants and farmers can can benefit. Um, what else can I say? I mean, there's things about peace agreements, how uh, peace agreements by that interaction with violent actors actually increase tensions. Eddie already mentioned that. um and also kind of the limits of um, food assistance and safety nets in what they can achieve. they They haven't been able to address the inequalities in Sudan um or even address the kind of the grievances of the the marginalized. Um, and again, we've seen this most recently with the um, family support program, the social protection program. It, 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 it was by no means enough to kind of support the civilian part of government. Um, and then finally, there's lots and lots of lessons about humanitarian programs in themselves. And I'm sure we will go on to discuss these. Of course, there's a need for protection of civilians. And, you know, I'm sure we'll be talking about ICRC and the Geneva Conventions. But also, you know, there's articles about frameworks for protection of children, about protection of livelihoods, about aid and um, protection, technical issues about the the risk of disease when you have uh, concentrated populations, again, very relevant now, Um, on the importance of even importance and often the neglect of working with Sudanese organizations, Um, again, relevant here because, you know, they're even if we didn't want to, there's no option now to work with Sudanese civil society, in, in particularly the resistance committees. And then finally, and again, I'm sure we come, we'll come come back to that, but the importance of mobility and migration, both as part of Darfuri livelihoods, um, whether it's pastoralists looking for pasture, or in search of safety, or in response to the threat of famine, and restricting that creates um, serious risks. and. Um, all of this was happening at the start of the conflict in Darfur and is continuing to happen now and is, yeah, even even, um, a more serious issues right now.
0: Thanks, Suzanne. Hood, I want to come to you. In the context of what you heard from Eddin Susan, Suzanne, where do you see the fault lines of the violence now? I mean, one thing in particular was sort of reflecting upon really that we can't, you know, a number of people that argue that behind Hermetti and Buran, there are other powers that hide. And in many ways, it's simplistic to just talk of these two generals, but it's what's behind that should really worry us. For sure. I, I think we have to be careful though,
3: to balance out overstating the role of other partners, particularly international partners. Um, yeah, sometimes- so Sudanese players. And also, but also some Sudanese place. So, for example, it's very convenient for someone like Hemeti to frame the entire Saf project as an Islamist project because then he gets to call it something ideological. It's a fight um between you know autocracy and Islamism versus democracy, which he then conveniently represents. But we have to be very careful about falling into that narrative. Um, because sure there are of course Islamists who are engaged in SAF and they are causing a lot of instability in SAF as well, there seem to be a lot of centers of command of control um, emerging, which is very dangerous for SAF as an institution, but also for the way that this conflict can then um, develop, if we see a fragmentation in SAF, obviously that's going to be very difficult then to de-escalate some of these uh, conflict dynamics, but I think you know there doesn't seem to be any ideology at play here this is at heart a brute um you know push for ambitious people who want to be who want to consolidate their coup in 2021 in their own image and have failed as Eddie has said to come up with a vision to do that and so effectively when they ran out of road particularly here on the SAF side, when there was no way to delay signing the framework agreement, when there was no other option that they had put on the table, when their uh, engagement with frankly unsavory characters in um, the FFC to people who backed the coup and therefore could never get the kind of legitimacy that they wanted, they had no other option but to force a a confrontation, which as Eddie said, most of us knew was absolutely a a potential, it was a possibility that it could happen. I think on the Hemeti, you know, on, on the RF, on, on the RSF side, they have struggled to get junior partners, quote unquote, that they can rely on. In other words, there they have sort of forced, squeezed themselves out of any engagement with the Islamists because Hemeti is both a political and financial competitor to the Islamists and the NCP. He sort of swallowed up a lot of their assets with the um. In the, in the transitional period. And of course, he was the one who arrested Bashir. And so they've never managed to forgive him for that. And so for, for him, he has no recourse to the Islamist umbrella, which which I remember at one time fully embraced him. Um, so he has had to sort of try and curry favor with the Democrats. And that's a very, I say Democrats, it's a very loose term, but um, he finds he's finding that quite difficult to achieve because they themselves, of course, realize how toxic he is and um, trying to rehabilitate him as they have tried to do, as international community has tried to do in the framework agreement process is very difficult. And even now, um, I think most Sudanese people don't want to be pulled into a conversation of having to choose one general over the other because they have spent over four years rejecting assiduously the military project as well as both Burhan and Hemeti. And unfortunately, the longer this this conflict goes on, the more I think, particularly within the international community, we may see a push to choose one party over the other. And we may see that reflected also on the ground with certain elements of Sydney society also feeling they have to make a choice one way or the other. Um, and then we'll start to see this more of the civil war scenario, you know, sort of playing out. Fortunately, for now, we're still mostly seeing armed actors settling old scores, with alongside their junior partners in within an urban setting. But we haven't yet seen civilians picking up arms in Khartoum. We are seeing that starting to see that much much more in Darfur, and I think with this conflict very clearly demonstrates is that there is no compartmentalization of conflict that like used to happen in within the Bashir years you know this the war in the south was fought in the south the war in Darfur was fought in Darfur. that is no longer the case um these things are of course have been interconnected for a long time I personally hate the term intercommunal fighting because it absolutely obfuscates the extent to which Conflict dynamics in places like Darfur are absolutely linked to what's going on in Khartoum, particularly after the Juba Peace Agreement of 2020. But I think now hopefully we'll be able to do away with that term and really look at these linkages, because that's the way to figure out what kind of solutions can can come to the fore and what really needs to be kept front and centre, regardless of who gets involved, um, what kind of junior partners come into play, What kind of narratives are being fought you know this uh, this is a conflict that is being fought in the streets on the ground the information war is being fought online you know there's particularly the beginning we saw himetti and burhan every day on on an arabic news channel we've seen very vigorous tweeting on both sides lots of statements you know this is an info war that's being fought here and now with these new um negotiations that are coming up into the four, either the Saudi one or whatever is being proposed by the Saudis or whatever Israel might have planned, this will just be, frankly, a new front for this uh, conflict rather than anything meaningful. I think we've seen that pretty well in the way that the uh, ceasefire negotiations have have borne out. I think I'll stop.
0: Thank Thanks, Kulud. Then you touched on a really important point about, you know, the info and something mm-hmm. I was discussing with Suad, you know, before the we started the, the event. I mean, the media have always played a very important role. I mean, think about the, the beginning of the conflict in Darfur and throughout you know, the first years of the conflict, and then again today. I mean, how, how do you think this is impacting the um, situation on the ground? And how do you to, to look at the role of the media overall over the past 20 years in Sudan? Yeah, well,
4: thank you, I Thank you all for attending. And uh, when you look uh, back now, um, the situation is really, is not different uh, on, uh, than 20 years ago, um, uh, the crisis experience in Sudan, in Darfur. So we are just like repeating the same kind of cycle of, of, uh, of, uh, of humanitarian crisis. And uh, when we look at the media at that time, 20 years ago, actually there is no um, WhatsApp, there is no social media. And uh, most of the people also are not aware, especially in Sudan, and then that they can contribute to this. Even the interest of the conflict in Darfur was not like uh, uh, among all the Sudanese. <coughs> and then the whole thing is likewise concentrated on among the Darfur population. That people, they go and they talk and they also come and demonstrate and protest here in the United Nations and they go to the um, embassy and so on. And now the situation is completely different. And uh, this really is, uh, it has become worse in terms of the information that we get about this conflict. There is contradicting information. Uh, you cannot uh, really uh, understand the truth, what is going on. Even for people who live in Khartoum, they cannot, you don't know what is going in the next neighborhood, What you don't know what are these plans are uh, uh, shelling and to, uh, what is the RSF? It's, uh, so it's really a completely chaotic situation in terms of the information you get out of all of this media, even the media, the local media that has become, now, ma, now the majority of Sudanese, they don't listen to the local media. And when we go to the Arab-sponsored uh, media, then each, mid each, each uh, you know channel, they serve the interest of the party um, that, to whom they have uh, the or with whom they are they have these ties and uh, they have interest. So there is no authenticity in all the information that you receive. And uh, now we have the BBC also. They come to the fore, and then all is about this uh, evacuation and so, so that So it is nothing. And, uh, and we, we really, that media could have provided because it is a Western media, and then it could have been more authentic in the provision of the information. But uh, it is all now, it's about evacuation of national uh, uh, nationals of uh, foreign countries. And, uh, and we don't know really why that is going on really. And uh, uh, those Sudanese who talk, they just bring that either from the military and they, they come and they talk that just has been doing this and this, and the RSF. Now they are really destroyed. They have been destroyed, and just one day or two days, then the whole thing is going to stop. We are going to finalize and terminate everything, and then the war continues. Now, this is, uh, you know, the third week, and uh, and uh, and you know, just oh. airplane, and then we see. Actually, I myself I yeah. have to stop really listening to this media or re- reading all this social because it is really frustrating. And then, uh, 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 and you don't know the truth. You don't know the truth. As for the foreign or the international community, it is, sorry. <laughs> just so moves up oh, pop-up yeah. sorry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah, yeah. So that media is really now, um, uh, uh, is not helping. It is just contributing to worsening the situation, politically and socially. And before the start of the conflict, also maybe you know uh, some of you have heard about this hatred, language of hatred that has become really um, uh, uh, prevailed that has really prevailed among the Sudanese. and that's all is about what uh, Hu have uh, you know presented about uh, you know the relation between Burhan and Hemeti. Both Burhan and Hemeti, they were parties in the conflict and Darfur and they were contributed to the creation of that humanitarian crisis in Darfur. They were friends, and uh, uh, Al Burhan, actually, he is the one behind the construction of this uh, RSF. and th- that's why they come together to the last minute until at the end, uh, you know, they have broken and, and and you know, their relationship has been broken because of the conflict of interest, not because of the interest uh, in the in the uh, of the uh, best interest uh, of the Sudanese community or for the democratic transition or you know that peaceful transition through. Uh, a civilian government. So that is not existing now because it is now just between these two guys. And uh, what is... uh, 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 We we, we really don't understand this about uh, why the Western community is not saying anything about this. Why it is. Not the European European Union, not uh, 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 the British government, not the United States or... uh, or uh, even the Arab communities, uh, you know, the uh, UAA and, uh, you know, sorry, apart from that kind of, you know, uh, trying just to, to say something about ceasefire, which is not credible and which uh, that people don't honor. There is no uh, even mechanisms for monitoring the ceasefire. And that is why, you know, yes, we have ceasefire for three days. And then in the evenings, then you heard about this shelling and, you know, these bombardments uh, and air strike. So, um, and without even hearing from these, uh, you know, communities, the uh, international community saying anything about how they are going really to interfere to make this uh, ceasefire, Uh, to be something credible and to contribute to the stability and security of those people in uh, in, the We've
0: come uh, uh, to what
4: you know the internationals
0: are doing or can do but I want to go back to a a couple of things first you know we're talking about violence in Khartoum but there's still a lot of you know violence and suffering in Darfur that we've forgotten about and we're not talking Um, you know not referring to even what we're hearing in the media it's so concentrated on what's happening in in Khartoum at the moment. So it'd be useful briefly to hear from um, you, Suzanne, on this, but, you know, Eddie referred to what happened Mm -hmm. um, with the European Union supporting the RSF in trying to stop, you know, migration flows, and that's something you've studied quite directly, so it'd be useful to hear
1: the UK the and yeah. the UK yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely well, absolutely I think we were because we are convenient you yeah <laughs> we were part of the uh, <laughs>
0: yeah. we conveniently forgetting yeah. this yeah, know, yeah, very yeah, enabling yeah. element of you know today's crisis yeah yeah
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. yes I mean this is which uh, is the cartoon process of course that um we're talking about and it's a kind of a kind of a, a, a migration management kind of um, um tool if you like. Um, But maybe go back a a little bit further. I mean, myself and Margaret Buchanan-Smith, we we did a study on migration from Darfur to Europe in 2017-2018. And um, part of it was looking at this the the policy. And at the time, there were a lot of kind of rumours that um, the EU, I mean, there were rumours at the time that the EU was paying the rapid support forces to... Um, I mean, they were paying for kind of border border control uh, measures, and I think also by ways of, I mean, controlling trafficking. Um, and um, at the time, you know, there wasn't, we didn't, um, we said there were rumors that was believed, and even if even if the EU wasn't paying um, the RSF directly, they were giving the message that they didn't want people to come to Europe from um, Darfur in this case. Um, and I was actually just checking. So, so that's how we put it at the time. I mean, there was a strong message going out. I mean, even if the money wasn't going directly to the RSF, I mean, the kind of the blurring between the, the army and the RSF at that time um, made it made it um, quite likely. Um, and then um, I was just checking this beforehand. And I mean, I think it wasn't until 2019 that, uh, you know, news articles came out that because of the actions of the RSF in, in Khartoum, that that funding was actually stopped. And I think it was admitted then. So yes, I mean, the it, it, certainly the EU, which had the UK as part of um, it at the time, um, played a role in um, the creation of HEMETI and the RSF and what we see now. Yeah. And we can see that they were warned
0: because I for once provided um, testimony to the UK parliament about that link and warned about, you know, the possible mm. consequences of that. But, Never mind. Musa, I want to welcome you. Welcome. Um, um, you probably had some trouble connecting, but we're delighted that you were able to join. Um, I, Eddie Thomas, who is here with us, stepped in to field your first question. So you, you can then offer him a cup of tea separately, you know, because he, he helped out with some of that. Can you hear us, Musa? I don't
2: No.
0: Okay. So maybe we'll have to. Oh, maybe maybe let's. Can you hear us? Yes. Oh, good. Ah. We can hear you. I was saying we uh, we brought Eddie out of his participant seat to join us on the panel to feed your first question, but uh, we've been Eddie talked a lot about um, the control of you know resources in Darfur as one of uh, the causes at the heart of the fighting for power in Khartoum today. How do you see this? You know, from your perspective.
5: Uh, uh, yeah, uh, you heard me well. Very well. Um, uh, sorry for joining late. Uh, uh, seems that uh, the time has changed here. Uh, anyway, the this is the main uh, th- this is the main uh, uh, platform.
0: Yes, You are live to six hundred people.
5: Aha. <laughs> uh-huh, all right. Yes. Uh, the what? What? What I see is that the uh, the there are complex uh, factors that led to this uh, situation now. Things are operating any. Uh, in the capital, but also in the, uh, in the regions. Uh, the, the Darfur connection has certainly uh, contributed to this complex picture. Uh, you know, first, through the, uh, the, the past processes that produced the as a, RSF as a, a strategy for uh, counterinsurgency, uh, by the uh, adopted by Bashir regime, and then that that grew into a force uh, which also uh, uh, got uh, uh, entangled with with issues of the revolution, whereby uh, some of the uh, one of the uh, the strategies of the RSF to. Become part of the political uh, uh, picture in the uh, wide, uh, wider uh, context is to adopt the slogan of the revolution, and therefore through this window of opportunity, they suddenly become they became a, a player in the national scene, and uh, but I think one of the important driving forces for all this is that uh, there are. Regional interests that also fueled the uh, you know, the, the, the the situation. Um, some of the actors uh, probably uh, you know, relate to this uh, regional interest, and therefore, uh, you know, now the, this this situation of any. You know, uh, broken uh, war uh, needs to be sorted out not only by bringing the Sudanese uh, and uh, to, to a platform to discuss and uh, and and, and uh, develop a common ground for uh, agreeing on what to do uh, but also the, the, the influencing uh, regional uh actors need to be uh, considered as well.
0: Thank you. Musa, um, we have sort of talked on you know here and there about uh, uh humanitarian response in Darfur, but what should a meaningful international humanitarian response be now? Both you know for all the people that are uh, fleeing Khartoum and the type of support that is needed. And of course, the people who are still, you know, um, affected by conflict in different parts of Sudan.
4: Oh, yeah, thank you. Um, uh, now um, this situation, this uh, kind of catastrophic situation in Khartoum is uh, is really for the most of the people in the center of, uh, center of Sudan. They see it as something really, uh, is a very big shock for them. And uh, whereas in, for the people of Darfur, it is just a continuation of, uh, of, the, of a daily lived kind of, uh, of experiences and crisis. And uh, because they develop the knowledge and even they develop the mechanisms and resilient mechanisms on how to, uh, to flee the situation, to escape the situation, including fleeing to the neighboring countries. Um, the humanitarian issues that has been going on, uh, because now we are talking about 20 years ago, And now we we have got now into the same standstill, like standstill situation now in Khartoum. Um, um, Taking into consideration the differences in the infrastructure in uh, in the center of Sudan, which is not available in Darfur. Now because those people now they go through ships and they go through the 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 right trucks and you know cars, whereas the people of Darfur uh, at, at this very moment. They just, uh, you know, especially women, because they are the most who are affected. So they carry on their heads. They carry on their, with their pregnant women, they have they uh, carry children on their backs, and then also they drag children on their heads, and they travel more than 50 kilometers or miles to go to chat. And in the way, during the travel, they become also subject, you know, to the atrocities by perpetrators, rapists, and you know, all gangs, and and even they, their assets also. This is small you know, little access that they carry on their heads also subject to be looted by criminals because now the area, especially in Genena and those, uh, you know, um, uh, borders, they become really um, spoiled uh, by this kind of gangs and not from therefore from everywhere in the region from Central African Republicans, even though, you know, those people that fled, you know, or they are fleeing now to Central African Republic because there is no choice for them, especially women who are the most affected. Now, when we come to Khartoum and we see that, uh, all the thing, because uh, that is also the nature of the government system of Sudan, that everything is concentrated in Khartoum and there is nothing, no outlets in Darfur or in other regions. All the industry, food industry, drug industry, whatever industries are all concentrated in, Sudan, in, in in Khartoum, Khartoum or Sudan. So that now the situation has been that all these industries have been looted or completely broken, including drug industri- industries and pharmacies and uh, shops and everything. And then so that is not means that there is no supply. Of commodities to the people, whether in Sudan, whether in Khartoum, and, and in the other regions, especially in Darfur. So now there is a problem now of supply, supply of commodities, basic commodities. And you know, like flour, because the industry of the flour, the firm of the flour has been destroyed and has been burnt and, uh, and and everything now. So there is there is no, that is one of the prices now is faced by, by the people uh, here in Khartoum and in, uh, in Darfur. And as I, uh, I said at the beginning, that maybe therefore people, they have developed that kind of resilience. And because those rural people still, they try to cultivate uh, uh, their lands or, you know, practice any kind of farming. Whenever there is a, you know, there is a chance for them, because also they are, you know, they are lurking uh, also um, uh, 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 around, you know, those perpetrators and uh, stopping them or preventing them to go and to, you know, um, to farm. Um, so we have gender-based violence and especially rape and you know those people because it is the women who go and do this kind of activities. So now uh, the Khartoum people, they don't have any other, they don't have resilient mechanisms, which makes the situation really hard for them. And that means that the circle of the needy people and the people who are vulnerable to lacking everything, including security, become really very wide. Maybe after a while, uh, uh, now most of them, they just escape to the nearby towns like the Jazeera, Sennar, Gadarib or whatever, or Sudan, but that is not gonna to uh, continue because there is also a problem of fuel. Now the fuel, a gallon of fuel, of uh, gasoline in al Fasher is $100, $100. So unless you are in extreme really need of using, um, a car and the car also become looted at any uh, any point because people now they get into people's houses and then they uh, loot most uh, have looted most of the cars. So now that means that the mobility has been affected. and it has been uh, it has been severely affected. That people don't try to go out. There is no cash because all the banks now they are either looted or they are uh, 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 you know they are closed because there is no. Uh, you know those uh, personnel and officers and uh, to run the bank, so that means there is no cash, even if you, you want to, and even if you have cash, then there is no commodities. So people are like, like trapped in this kind, you know, of uh, of, uh, of vulnerability. That and even if you have cash, you have a nice house, then also you become subject to looting and subject to to be killed. So that is the situation in in Khartoum, and uh, and that people. They have not yet, even in the media, people, they do not, or they have not started talking about how they are going to manage this situation, this crisis. It's still people talking about Hemeti, about Burhan, and about, 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 and what they talk about or what they say is really not helping to the community, not helping to the, uh, uh, for the people to develop mechanisms, uh, positive mechanisms on how to handle this kind of crisis. So that is the realistic situation. The health, uh, we are talking about that 70 or 80% of hospitals and health centers uh, 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 in Khartoum has been out of of operation. But when we go there to the regions, especially in Darfur, there may be only two or three or five uh, hospitals and these hospitals are not working. There have been also um, uh, 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 unnumbered people who get killed in Darfur as a result of shelling and as a set of stray bullets. That is not counted in the figure that people talk about, because all everything now is just concentrated in Sudan, in uh, in, in Khartoum, about Khartoum. And now people in Al-Fashir, they're talking about the smell of the corpses that are identified and that, uh, you, know, the, you know, the health workers at hospitals, they have they don't have the capacity to manage them, you know? So that is also one of the problems, that means, which means that we can also expect an outbreak of disease, disease outbreak, and that uh, 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 without any kind of intervention. And that's why we really need a, an immediate intervention. We need a strong call of intervention, humanitarian intervention. To come to Khartoum and us, as the, and also to to Darfur. Because now we don't have any information about what is going on in South Kordofan and in Nuku Mountains. Because if something happened here, it inevitably has a, its impact on other regions. But now it's just that the people of Khartoum talk about Khartoum and people of Darfur talk about Darfur because they know actually what is going on but other people are not involved so we need really intervention we need also ceasefire we need ceasefire and a credible credible ceasefire it is not like this fire that you know we go we, we, we agree for three days ceasefire and then uh now and then just an hour later then uh everything is uh, is, is collapsed We need a credible ceasefire and that credible ceasefire, it needs to have a monitoring system just to have a guarantee that those people really honor this ceasefire. So it is not just like ceasefire and just and that. And this is, at this point, we need really the involvement of international community and especially the UK government, we need. And I don't think that because this is something doesn't have money, it doesn't need money that uh, people they pay. People they just have to yeah, uh, to, uh, to 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 uh, strengthen their influence and to push hard uh, for those people. And I think they have the they have the power to do that. The U.S. It's not just about yes, You are interested in Sudan resources. Everybody, every Sudanese understand that. But also we understand that you know this uh, global community. Also they have you know cooperation and they they benefit from each other. So we don't deny that. But that that does not has to come at the expense of the security of the Sudanese and to, uh, and, to and 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 to also uh, threatening the democracy and the transition peaceful transition because we had really we have this uprising in Sudan and it was very powerful, it is really very respected respected by all over the world the community, the international community and it is really it is a shame that we don't stand together and hope those people and those young generation like Khulud, not me, of course, and uh, you know, just have to, to lead their way, yes, and to contribute to the uh, stability and the and and and, and the global
0: Khulud on this as well, both on you know what an international humanitarian response, a meaningful one would be. But also, you know, we talked about the um the civilian revolution where it's left, you know, what the resistance committees are doing now and how international partners should support them? So what what can international partners do that is meaningful both on the humanitarian and the political side? I think the very unfortunate
3: thing is that the international community hasn't spent the past four years trying to figure out how to engage with with the resistance committees. And so it's a bit difficult to try and do that now within a conflict situation. I think there's such a waste of an opportunity four years ago in 2018-2019 to see the resistance committees as the political force that they are, rather than, you know, a bunch of kids pushing for change. And I think had that been decision been made then to take them seriously, we'd be in a much better position now uh, for the international community to engage with the resistance committees. But as, as it is, there's a level of mistrust, of course, um, and also that you know, state-based organizations, be they bilaterals such as embassies or multilaterals like the AU, EGAD, the UN, they don't they don't know how to read amorphous, leaderless organizations like the resistance committees, and they haven't taken the opportunity to figure out how. And so this is a difficulty now with saying, you know, we all recognize that the resistance committees have. Put service provision yet again um, at the heart of their response, much like in much in the way that they did in 2018, 2019. Um, And that's where they get a lot of their legitimacy. In fact, they're the only political actors to have any legitimacy right now because they are doing the work. They are facing the bullets on the streets and trying to get people support. They're trying to get people help. They're trying to get people to find safe routes out of Khartoum and other places. Um, How to engage them now? when reaching them is more difficult arguably than before is going to require a lot more political will frankly from the international community and I'm not quite sure that it's there um, partly because we haven't seen a significant enough shift in the way that the international community engages with Sudan you know part of the reason why we're here part of part of the reason that this conflict started when it did and how it did is because the international community wanted to frame these generals as reformers as people who could, against the odds and against everybody, you know, 45 million people's beliefs about these generals could shepherd in a civilian democratic government that would be completely inimical to their interests. Um, They, you know, frame these generals as goodwill actors that they could, for example, say, we commit to democracy and actually mean it when all evidence points to the contrary. And we're still seeing that play out now, the same attitudes, the same behaviors, the same logics from the international community are still very much prevalent in the way that these ceasefires are being negotiated. We're hearing a lot of pleas, a lot of gentle hand-holding, a lot of, um, you know, please, can you make sure our citizens get out and then perhaps you can fight us out afterwards. Um, and that, frankly, is not going to get through to these generals because that's not what they understand. What do they understand? Well, the Egyptians managed to get their soldiers out pretty much from the first few days by using the by getting the United Arab Emirates to also guarantee that safe passage, that is the kind, those are the kinds of actors that have leverage over the generals. It's not South Sudan. South Sudan, actually, the Sudan has leverage over South Sudan, particularly on the oil issue. So that dynamic doesn't quite work out in terms of negotiations. But if you get Egypt on board, if you get the United Arab Emirates on board, then you might be able to have a proper conversation about ceasefires. Without that, um, it's not going to go anywhere. I think that's clear as day. But that reckoning that needs to happen, um, in D.C., in Brussels, in Whitehall, to realize that those that kind of shift is uh, is, is needed, that kind of change in pace is needed, that kind of um, reviewing of assumptions is needed. I don't think has happened yet. We're not really seeing that at all.
0: Thank you very much, Kruda. I couldn't agree more. Um- Let me open up to the audience. Uh, I hope you will indulge me to carry on until quarter to seven because we started at 15 minutes late uh, so that we can get more contributions in. Um, There's a roving mic. Just please introduce yourself, say um, who you are and uh, if you are affiliated to anyone. And to my team, the online chat is not working. If someone can fix this and send me the questions from the online chat, that would be useful. Um, After the Q&A. Please. At the end. So there should be someone, maybe you've got it all in mind.
6: Hi, I'm Rachel Goldwyn from WFP, um, I've got a couple of questions, um, hopefully um, Um, we'll have time so the first one really is about how you think the situation is going to evolve we actually spoke a little while ago and you foresaw all of this so I'm really interested to hear the perspectives of the panel not just you know what's going to happen at the top level but how is it going to play out regionally different parts of Darfur how that's how that's going to play out across the Kordofans what's going to happen in Blue Nile State really interested to hear how you think the future is going to evolve in this and then um, obviously, you know, humanitarian assistance getting caught up in conflict. I know, Suzanne, you've written a lot about that with food aid. Really interested to hear about how you see, you know, with food aid coming back in eventually, it's how you see that potentially getting caught up in conflict and how to avoid that.
0: Thanks, Rachel. And uh, can you pass the gentleman in the back. And...
1: Yes, um, my name is James Morton. I worked in Darfur back in the 80s. And I'm really interested in what Huda had to say and also Professor Musa about regional actors. Hudud, beg your pardon. Um, is it too naive to see this as a repeat of the, the Qataris and the Turkey? Turks support the Muslim brothers and the Saudis and the Egyptians do the opposite? I'd be interested to hear your views on that.
7: Um, Well, first of all, I I just wanted to say I very much agree with what Halud had to say about the Egyptians and the UAE as being the two countries that probably have the most leverage and which need to be persuaded very strongly by international actors to use that leverage if we're going to stand any chance of getting a credible, monitored cessation of hostilities as a first step. Um, However, Halud, I did want to just uh, take up one point you raised, which was whether this is this is just a power struggle between the two armies, or whether there's any ideological element in it. Now, of course, I think we all would agree that, that we wouldn't believe, we would be naive to, to think this just because um, Hamiti is saying so. Obviously, he's doing that for tactical propaganda purposes. Um, however, it isn't, of course, just him that's saying it. The Some of um, Sudan's political leaders and civil society leaders have been warning about the um, role of what they call the counter-revolution, the old regime elements for a long time now. Um, and uh, now with the war raging, some of the junior army officers, and indeed some of the former army officers who might who have been invited to sort of go back and into service, they've refused to do so because they object to the current army leadership. Also, um, we've seen in the run-up to the war over previous months, we've seen efforts um, to reactivate the popular defense forces, uh, who we know, obviously, are in the sort of ideological militia. And during Ramadan, um, there were lots of videos circulating of the National Congress Party, supposedly banned, calling, um, well, both for the release of former President Bashir, but also calling on the Islamist Shadi battalions to be reactivated and that sort of thing. So even if one dismisses what Hamiti has to say, do you, would you not say that there was at least some uh, involvement of the National Congress Party and the Islamists about which we should be very worried and that this should be taken into account by the international community in the way they set about trying to negotiate a credible cessation of hostilities and what follows on from that?
0: Thanks, Ross.
5: Hello, my name is Muhaidan Hagga. I am um, Sudanese basically living in the UK for 13 years. Especially for Guinea, basically. Uh, for last two weeks, I don't know why the government released the gun for the civilian after the fall down. Why particular at this time and how is different from the civil war from Rwanda? So how is different from the Rwanda Civil War in 1994?
0: Thank you. I think I'll start with this, and I'll allow a couple from the online audience. And if you have time, we'll do one yes more I round. Have
5: to oh, the sorry. panel for you, actually. Uh, yeah, yeah. My name is Bushra, Bushra Rahma, human rights activist. Uh, kindly, you know, actually, as head of panel, you have used the kind of uh, stereotype in your delay, please, if there is any delay, just refer it to the person who delayed, if you please.
0: Fair point, absolutely. I, mean, I use the stereotype about Italians as well.
5: I'm
0: one? <laughs> of which one. Um, can, um, right, so I was gonna um, add a couple of questions from uh, the only audience. So uh, this question from Margie Buchanan-Smith, uh, we are hearing about some local negotiations that so far have halted the fighting in, for example, El fashion at Dain in Darfur. Uh, what role and importance do the panel members see for this kind of locally negotiated agreement in finding a way out of this conflict? Um, and Mauro Costa asks Is there any information on the current situation in the two areas, Nuba Mountains and Southern Blue Nile? Um, Kru, there were a few questions that actually straight to you. Would you yeah. like to take those? Yeah. Um. Sure. Um,
3: I'll leave the question on humanitarianism to Saad. But um, just to your point that I, you know, I saw this coming. I think we all sort of did. Um, the issue becomes why was that ignored for so long, right? Because there was an idealism in the way that that the political processes were, um, were were held and were cultivated Um, and that idealism was framed as pragmatism you know we must deal with the generals in order to allow Sudan to move on to the next stage but actually it was very much an idealism that was at play there in seeing that they could be the kinds of people to see this through so I think we need to shift that as well but I'll let Saad um, answer the rest of your question if that's okay um the question to the gentleman at the back um and to Roz which is kind of linked um The the Egyptians, I think, have made the wrong call. Quite clearly, they're listening to Bashir loyalists in Cairo who seem to have said to them, back us and SAF and the Sudan armed forces in order to bring us back to power and we will see through your interests. And more importantly, we will not engage with the Muslim Brotherhood activities, the broader Muslim Brotherhood activities in Egypt, bearing in mind that Egypt has designated their Muslim Brotherhood as a terrorist organization in 2014, what the current, what the recent release of NCP bigwigs—you know, the real ideologues, the ones who have been there since before even the, Nas- the NCP when it was the National Islamic Front—and um, who grew up in that tradition of regional is- political Islam, not just in in Sudan—I think that should ring alarm bells in Cairo. That whatever pact they may have made with the NCP, that it would that effectively they would only try and engineer their own return, actually may not be playing out anymore. And that the return of these new, um, newly released prisoners <clears throat> might change that calculation massively. So I think Cairo has an incentive now to try and, and sort of end this rather than supporting one side, obviously the Sudan armed forces. And linked to what you were saying, Roz, I think we have to, it it's, can be true at the same time that, the Islamists are using this conflict to re-engineer their return and that Himeti is overstating their influence in order to create this ideological battle. I think what we're seeing is initially the Islamists, as you say, they were very emboldened by the ways in which um, the political process was failing effectively to gain any traction. We saw a lot more Islamists public presence, they had public iftars, they had press conferences, um, they had statements coming out, there was a new political front that was created by an alleged, um, well, convicted terrorist. Um, And we'd never seen that kind of public display by the Islamists before. Clearly they felt that the political environment warranted or could allow for their return in a way that wasn't possible in 2019, 2020, 2021, etc. Even after the coup of 2021. The Islamists have First of all, war is their comfort zone. They have they survive very well within the context of conflict in Sudan. So this is absolutely in their wheelhouse. Secondly, this is exactly the kind of destabilization that could bring back their return because they do still have constituencies. As you say, they have the Popular Defense Forces, armed public civilian militias that they are able to help hasten any sort of, or support these Sudan armed forces, which we know is quite fragmented, very ill-equipped and not exactly up to fighting weight. I think what they, what some of them have tried to do is make use of the, of the chaos to try and re-engineer um, themselves back into positions of uh, political advantage. I am sure there are some, particularly within the Transitional Military Council, well-known Islamists, who want to use this as a way to get, you know, to get to, to sort of entrench their, their power, particularly vis-a-vis Burhan. Um, and Burhan, we knew anyway, has become increasingly more um, expendable, much in the way that Bashir did in or April of 2019. And so the question then becomes, you know, right now, his presence is able to somewhat mitigate the, re, you know, sort of the more, hardline Islamists from taking over the Sudan armed forces but soon that may not be the case soon soon he may go and this will be an entirely Islamist project led by someone like Kabashi or Ibrahim Jabir who are much more of the Islamist uh, cloth um, and then I think we'll see a shift but it's worth I think trying to seize the opportunity before that happens because once that happens it, it, it's sort of a new threshold it's a new phase of the conflict that I think will be difficult more difficult to de-escalate.
0: So do you want to add um, anything on humanitarian question from Rachel? Uh,
4: yeah, I'll just go back to this Al Fasher. Um, you know um, the local. Yes, this is a local mechanism that was uh, uh, used in Al Fasher by the locals, and to which he helped really and, and succeeded in maintaining uh, security in Al Fasher and also in Aden and also partly in in Niyala. And uh, uh, because now we need, we really need, uh, we understand that the Sudanese that this war, there is no a winner in this war, and uh, and the defeat is defeat for the whole society, Sudanese society. Because we are going to see thousands of people dead and you know vulnerability and maybe also lead to the, uh, you know uh, very really bad and worse outcomes that is a division of the country and civil war and this is the uh, what is going on among the sudanese people that they want to avoid so uh, and at the same time they don't want international engagement um, in the solution in, in sudan and and that is also to avoid you know this conflict of interest of this uh, international community and regional blocks that when they interfere then that is their Sudan they has to pay for that and they don't do it for free then so it's mm-hmm. about the resources of Sudan manipulation of the resources manipulation of the people so that's why they want to keep as minimum as possible the engagement of settling this uh, problem uh, uh, by the international community and you know these regional blocks. This uh, and to go back to our, you know, reconciliation mechanisms. And therefore, as uh, also in Nuba Mountains and you know all these peripheries, um, they used to have reconcil very strong reconciliation mechanism. And uh, and they have always because the regions is uh, is a, is a, is an environment, is a field, and uh, is a context of conflict between tribes and uh, between ethnic groups. And uh, you know, it's just something habitual. That people get into conflict, but the conflict in the past did not really escalate into this kind of level of uh, which what, uh, uh, like what we are seeing now. So that's why the people of uh, it, and also we understand that the gas government also has weakened these mechanisms, and, uh, and and was really very keen not to lead uh, not to let any kind of uh, of success. Among those people of the ayawit, which is the local institutions, reconciliation institutions, and for conflict resolution, and then we can this uh, this uh, this uh, uh, social organizational uh, mechanisms and bodies. Now those people of Darfur in Al fashir when those people, the, the RFS and the military, they started, you know, uh, bombing and 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 shelling and you know uh, uh, shooting, then the military. Are based in the Qiyadah and the RSF. They are based in, uh, you know, because they stay um, and then uh, as uh, they guard some of these strategic, uh, strategic uh, buildings or facilities uh, in Al-Fashir. Even though in Al there there is no such kind of strategic facilities that is important as, sport, as, as important as the, the facilities in Khartoum, but anyway, it is also a center of, uh, of the presence of those of different uh, factions, you know, rebel groups and RFS. and uh, it is a really really chaotic situation. Uh, so when they started, you know, shelling, and the, the victims become the people and children and uh, more than almost 200 people and children like 50 child um, they they die, <clears throat> and that was really alarming for the, the the people of Darfur that the conflict is in Khartoum Burhan and Hemeti, they all uh, live in Khartoum and there is nothing that people can gain out of the conflict if they fight here in Al-Fashir or even in Nial or even in Aden, so they just come in a group and they say okay let us uh, initiate a kind of communication with those uh, different uh, parties in the conflict and then see how can they respond. And then they stay like two days, continuously, day and night, going to those and going to those and going to those. And then they convince them that this conflict is in Khartoum. If you want to fight, then just go to Khartoum and fight there. But we have nothing that, uh, uh, this is this stay here, this group stay here, the forces of R S S normally, just, just uh, uh, you know, they host, uh, take uh, like a uh, shelter uh, in the streets and uh, uh, in neighborhoods and then any fight, then that means that the people who die. And then, uh, so anyway, in the end, they listen to the ideas and, uh, and, and, and to those people and they say, OK, uh, we understand that and, and we respect it and we are not going to fight. And that was on the sixteenth of, uh, which was on on Sunday, uh, the second day of of the fight. And this is a story. And also, they asked them that you need to provide protection to let the police also to uh, to guard the facilities, the government facilities, the hospitals, and you know the banks, and you know all these ministers and so on. And uh, the military stay where they are, and the RSF stay where they are, and then all of you contribute to the stability of the of the state of the, uh, of the of the of the city and similarly the same thing happened also in at the end and because in at the end it has an a, an additional component because it is the area or it is the place of the Rizigar people and uh, you know the uh, ethnicity and this ethnicity that people you know they claim that he may belong to this uh, uh, to this uh, group and now like they are not, uh, they are not siding with Hemeti, but the most important for him, for them, is that, you know, not to get their uh, people or their, the whole town to get them in, uh, trapped into, you know, in this kind of, uh, of, of, of and they ask them clearly, if you want to fight, you go outside the city of Aden, and if you didn't go, then we can fight you, Akira. so that is the local mechanism been helping. helping. Uh, resettlement of, uh, you know, and stability in Because
0: we are running yeah. out of time. I want to bring in Musa yeah. as well. Uh, Musa, if you want to add anything on the questions that have been raised. You're on mute, or we can't hear you.
5: Yes, regarding the first question, raised by John and Rosalind uh the, in, in regard to regional uh, actors, I think the regional actors they are uh, of course uh, very important, but also they cannot be taken uh, separately because uh, each of them uh, you know answers to different interests and they cannot uh, come together to solve uh, the problem. And I think they are also subject to uh, international actors that have equally, they have interest as Pouloud was saying. So uh, I think the the, the best thing is to bring all these actors together uh, to have an overall leverage. The regional actors should be uh, leveraged by the international actors. Uh, And unfortunately, both the regional and international actors uh don't have that uh, enough will. we have seen it not only now during the crisis but during the past four years where uh they could have been uh, you know more effective uh and and uh, the 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 card of the revolution would not have been derailed, but they were very slow in the response the the signs for regional actors to dominate was very clear, but the international actors were very slow in showing their uh, the response towards that. Now it is, it's, it's, it's quite different, uh, difficult. And I see that we are moving towards uh, the Libyan model, uh, where despite the presence of uh, powers like NATO, Still, uh, regional actors like, like EGBOE and Turkey were operating, and now we have that mix, which is complex and uh, simply the country is abandoned. I'm really pessimistic, and I I see that uh, we are we are going to that direction, and we are unable to. Uh, I don't see any 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 uh, force uh, showing enough will to to. To, to actually avoid uh, that destiny. Regarding uh, the local, uh, local peace uh, activities that uh, Margie asked about, uh, yes, as was saying, community matters. And we have uh, this example of, uh, of uh, Somaliland, uh, where the, the society uh, really uh, managed to, to get the country going. But the situation in Darfur is is a little bit different because we are uh, surrounded by uh, countries that are actually engaged in the in the in the process, and we we we, we are landlocked, and so while uh, this will have a, re- a limited effect of at least uh, operating a local ceasefire, but. Uh, if there is, if the if the war protracts, then such local uh, arrangements will not be able to uh, to to produce chances for uh, operating a lifeline for uh, uh, bringing rations, food, and uh, drugs from outside. Uh, that would require the powers of a state, and uh, we, and we don't uh, and it's very difficult to build up. Uh, such uh, local uh, aff- affiliations through different states, in order to have a, uh, a, an alternative state to the uh, Sudanese, said that the, that uh, the warlords are being uh, you know, are, are 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 engaged in uh, fighting about. So it, it will need to to engage the, all the Darfur's, uh, much of the Kordofans, to have a big uh you know area uh, of locally operated uh, social uh, governance system and they need uh, uh, somewhere one of the neighbors to to allow uh you know operations to come through say like uh, South Sudan if South Sudan uh, cooperates then there is a window of opportunity because there there are um open borders between uh East Darfur and South Sudan through which Local through which uh, uh, supplies can reach the Darfur, the areas in Darfur that have uh, local peace uh, being uh, operated. So I, th- I think there is some uh, some uh, chance that uh, these uh, local peace operations, uh, if they they uh, they are expanded to 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 involve several states. Uh, they can operate through the south, and we have this example of a lifeline uh, that was done in the 80s uh, during the height of, of the war between the south and South Sudan and and and, and, and or, or the south and the uh, Bashir regime, uh, when the, the such uh, operation was uh, was done through the neighboring countries.
0: Likely today, I'm
2: afraid Musa. Very quickly, Suzanne. Yes. Um yes, very quickly on um, I mean, I think we, we can have a much longer discussion about um food aid. Um, just in one minute, and then I want to make one other point. I mean, obviously access is an issue now. Um, working, I mean, what I've already said in lessons learned, working closely with uh, local communities or civil society, the relief committees, not sorry, the resistance committees have already played a, um, a big role, including in the camps in, in Darfur, in kind of improving accountability of relief aid. Obviously, there'll be a need to look at um, cash transfers, because most of the IDPs have been receiving cash transfers. You have high prices, banks are closed, mobile money is not working. Um, But also to think, I mean, think very carefully about um, what private sector companies you're working with, because, you know, the ones that are most likely to be able to overcome the biggest, the the, the constraints now are the the big uh, companies, which, which were previously linked to the, well, were linked to the previous regime. Um, I also want to talk just very briefly about the reception in neighboring countries. Obviously, that will be an issue now. I mean, uh, providing adequate assistance in neighboring countries. But also, I just want to refer very briefly to what we're doing here and the illegal, so-called illegal immigration bill that's just passing through Parliament. I mean, obviously now is not the time to criminalize um, Sudanese arriving on small boats in the UK. I mean, now is the time to um, create safe routes for Sudanese asylum seekers, uh, uh, create opportunities for family reunion, just as we saw in the Ukraine. And, um, you know, many of my um, asylum-seeking friends have been waiting for their interviews for like two years. And now again, would be the time to provide, give them immediate asylum given what's um, going on in, in Sudan. So that's, um, yeah, I wanted to make that point.
0: Thank you very much. Eddie, as, uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, copted onto the panel, there was a, <laughs> a question about um, the Twitters if you can add anything on that, but any final reflections <laughs> on the Twitters if we know anything about the Twitters or oh, well, I can add that.
1: The, the two areas? Yeah. Oh, just that, I, I mean, that might be something to watch, and I, I don't really know what's going on, but I've been in touch with some, People in Kadugli recently, and um, oh, sorry, and um, there are some areas that are at peace, and it's going to be very hard to understand why areas which are crisscrossed with front lines like South Kordofan, why they are at peace. I mean, one reason it, what people will say, oh, the RSF is not here, that's why. Uh, but I mean, it's there, it's more than just that. We need, I think, uh, looking at areas which are able to escape the uh, conflagration uh, is something that you know might be able to help think through future possibilities for Sudan at this extremely dark moment.
0: But thank you so much, Khaloud, Swad, Susan, Eddie, and Musa. I think you've really had I'm, I'm sorry to the very very many questions and comments online I can get to and you know for those who are here we can carry on um, on the side but I think it's been very clear from the discussion that you know how deep the roots of the current um, violence um, are um, how far back they go and how they can be addressed with quick fixes you know the odds sort of ceasefire today or tomorrow they go away um, back and they need to be addressed all once in the context of everything else is going on in Sudan. You know, Sudan has a, a very troubled history of piecemeal agreements that I think has led to where we are today, always trying to sort of um, find small um, settlements here and there that have never really allowed us to address the um, overall picture. And From everything we've heard today, it's also very clear that um, the international engagement continues to be wanting in so many ways from the way we are not really responding properly to the humanitarian crisis, to the way the political negotiations are not really focusing on what is needed most, and particularly supporting Sudanese civil society, that has been so brilliant over the past few years. Have really shown us what it can be done with movements of social change, and then of course not welcoming asylum seekers here when you know they are here in many other countries. Um, when they're most in need. And I think for all of us that care about Sudan and the Sudanese, we can at least make our voice heard with our representatives, you know, with you know, in, in the countries where uh, we live, you know, with the people we elect um in our parliaments, because it's important you know, to act. There are 45 million people that are affected by um, a very long history of violence in Sudan. And I think the Sudanese have suffered enough. Um, Before we conclude, I just want to invite um, Maddy Crotter from Waging Peace to read a short testimonial that commemorates the life of Sharif Barker. Sharif was a Darfur asylum seeker who sought refuge in the UK and we felt that would be a good way um, to bring to life what these
6: personal histories are. Thank you so much. I think you've just... Oh, should I come up there? Sorry. Thank you. Yeah, you've just introduced that um, brilliantly. Um, I think we felt that taking this beyond policy, beyond statistics, would be an important way to mark the 20th anniversary in the situation we're in at the moment. And just to expand on what Suzanne said, um, as you'll hear in the testimony, it's a blending of what's happened in Sudan historically, but also what happens when people reach the UK. Um, Many people from Sudan come to the UK many to live here and under you know various immigration uh, manners but many to claim asylum uh sudan is historically in the top 10 countries of origin for asylum seekers to the uk it was at the in the last immigration statistics it was the 8th highest uh, country of origin with a very high grant rate. And that obviously shows no sign that it will be reducing in the years ahead. Um, Way beyond these evacuation flights, you're going to see people coming to the UK from Sudan. And the only tools that the UK currently has to deal with that um, are very poorly equipped to deal with Sudanese cases. And I completely echo what Suzanne says about um, granting those who've had their cases very delayed uh, asylum or giving them mechanisms like streamlined asylum processing, um, you know, to criminalise those who arrive via small boats is not appropriate. Um, Anyway, the testimony of Sharif Barco or Majed Hassan, as he is also known, illustrates some of these tensions, I feel. So, Sharif Parker was born in 1961 in Sendikoro village, Darfur. He was a member of the Masalit tribe and grew up in a large family. He was intelligent, practical, warm and generous. He worked as a peasant farmer from an early age. And he was also a house builder, shepherd and livestock and agricultural trader. One day, while selling mangoes, he spotted a woman in the distance and instantly fell in love. The two were happily married with two sons by the time the genocide in Darfur began. Sharif was of course caught up in that violence, Um, He, alongside others trying to protect his people against the Janjaweed. He was captured and taken to a jail in Khartoum, Sudan's capital city. He was detained in secret and tortured. Sharif's uncle used bribery to get Sharif released and insisted Sharif would be killed unless he left the country. His uncle found a smuggler to fly him out of Sudan. When they landed, the smuggler told him to wait in the arrivals lounge and that he would return soon. After hours of waiting, terrified he would be imprisoned or deported, Sharif was eventually accompanied by immigration, to immigration by a helpful passenger. He, he was told he was at Heathrow Airport in London. Despite the terrible persecution he had fled, his asylum application failed. He lost his asylum support allowance and became destitute. In desperation, he made a second claim under a different name. However, with fingerprints on file, he was detained at Rugby Prison for nine months for making a false claim, after which he was due to be deported. Fortunately, with the help of a UK based cousin and the charitable support of Asylum Aid and Freedom from Torture, Sharif accessed proper legal representation. He was released from detention and finally granted asylum in 2005. After months of homelessness, he was eventually housed in Tottenham in London. Meanwhile, his wife and two sons were murdered in the genocide in Darfur. In his new flat in Tottenham, Sharif showed a photograph of his two sons to a friend. This was all he had left of them, he'd said. As Sharif tried to integrate into British life, he faced barrier after barrier, He struggled to access English classes and other training. He was limited to low-paid, insecure manual labour, working as a panel beater, security guard, warehouse cleaner and Uber driver, among other jobs. His first application for citizenship was rejected, but Sharif finally became a British citizen in 2013, 10 years after he'd arrived. He became involved in his local community, sharing his story to highlight the experiences of refugees in 2005, he featured in the film Darfur House, where he and three others built a traditional Darfuri house at the Museum of Childhood in London. He was even the basis for a character in Sonia Linden's Crocodile Seeking Refuge, which toured the UK in 2006. In 2019, he joined the delegation of Haringey Welcome to present a petition to the EU Parliament, European Parliament, sorry, calling for UK migrant and refugees rights to be considered in the Brexit deal. He saved his meagre earnings to help rebuild the wells that were destroyed in air raids in Darfur. At the end of 2014, he went to Australia to visit his niece, Salha, and work as a farm labourer. It reminded him of Darfur, the heat, nature, and a simpler life. Sharif and Salha decided to return to Sudan together. Sharif changed his name by poll to Majed Hassan so that he could finally visit Sudan. On his first visit in 2016, he remarried before returning to the UK. He went back every year to be with his wife, who had remained in Darfur. This was just around the time of the revolution, to explain. So, Sharif wanted to bring his new wife to the UK to live with him, but yet again faced a multitude of barriers that would have taken years to overcome. In 2020, they were expecting their first child. Sadly, Sharif's wife died during childbirth. He returned to Darfur at the end of 2020 to arrange to bring his baby daughter to the UK. However. On Saturday, 16th of January, 2021, Sharif was killed during an armed attack on a camp for displaced persons in Al-Janayna, the regional capital of West Darfur. He was helping civilian women and children escape to safety as the camp came under siege. When he was injured, Sharif was taken to a friend's home. However, he was followed by members of the militia, brutally beaten and shot dead alongside his friends. The ongoing violence was so intense that Sharif's body could not be retrieved for two days. I share that in the full knowledge that El is today facing similar levels of violence that are happening far away from the media lens. Um, so I just wanted to offer that testimony that brings to life maybe some of the things people were discussing today.
0: Thank you very much, Madi. And again, thanks to Kulud, Swad, uh, Suzanne, Musa and uh, Eddie. Um, all we can do is try to amplify What's happening throughout Sudan, and try to make sure that we will our political leaders to push for um, some form of engagement that is meaningful and lasting. Um, for those who hear, there are some Sudanese snacks out there. Thank you for everyone who's joined us online, and please join me in thanking the colleagues who have been speaking to them.